right, so we are continuing our series through the Minor Prophets this morning, and they are minor, not in the sense that they're of lesser importance than the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They're not the minor leagues of prophecy. Um, they're, they're minor in the sense that they're just smaller. They're just shorter than the major prophets. Uh, thankful for Dr. Singer's able handling of the book of Micah. Last week, I was able to listen to it uh, Monday morning as I was getting ready. Um, his message, I trust, both fed your soul and whetted your appetite to study the book of Micah more on your own. That's actually the intention of the whole series. So one message per book through the Minor Prophets is kind of like getting in a helicopter and doing a flyover altitude of exposition through these books. We don't usually move through books that fast um, at that altitude, but it can be really helpful. Okay? If you're unfamiliar with the terrain on the ground, an aerial view, like a drone view, serves you really well when you're navigating the ground, right? So it's why you put the puzzle box lid in front of you when you're trying to do a puzzle. Like, what in the, where is this at? Well, if you see the hole, it helps you fit in the pieces. It's why an aerial shot is helpful if you're trying to find your way out of a corn maze, if any of you are doing that these days in the fall. So listen through the series, but also I encourage you, again, as I did in the first few weeks, to dive into these books and study them more for yourself. So use a good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible. There's other good study Bibles. NIV study Bible is great. The Life Application uh, Bible. Just dig in. And if you've never, you know, picked up that reading plan that we sent out, you know, several times early on in the series, um, or if you started it and you kind of stalled out, well, you can just pick it up again right where you left off or right where we are right now, and you'll be able to spend some profitable time uh, between now and the end of the month of October in the books of Jonah through Malachi. So these books just unfortunately don't get as much devotional reading traffic, um, probably because the meaning is not always so easy to discern with just cursory reading. And yet I wonder if underneath that, maybe there's also an unchallenged presumption that the gain isn't really worth the pain. Maybe that's not why, or maybe that's why we, we don't spend as much time in these books. Um, so may this series show you that there's gold in them, their hills, and may it motivate us to rush into those hills in search of more treasure. All right? So at the outset, let me just say this. Um, this sermon is not about pandemics, protests, or politics. Woohoo! Come on. Nobody? All right. In fact, those are all small potatoes compared with the themes of Nahum. Nahum is about God, who he is, what he's like, and one of his attributes is the fact that he is the avenger. So, some of you might think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe when I say The Avenger. Um, it's a popular movie franchise, popularizes superheroes that were previously known mainly in the comic book world. 
Uh, one of the central plot lines, even if you haven't seen any of these movies, is that there's the gathering together of a team of superheroes who work together to fight not only the threats to Earth, but threats to the entire universe. Okay? And the team is eventually named the Avengers. And, here's the point of bringing up that illustration, nobody's offended. Vengeance is incredibly offensive to many when speaking of God. In the West, taking vengeance against your enemies is also usually frowned upon. But why is it that so many movies do just fine with a plot line based on vengeance? The Avengers, obviously. Even old spaghetti westerns. Why? I don't know why they call it spaghetti. I'll have to look that up later. Sorry, don't let that throw you off. Okay, write that down or you're going to be thinking about that later. Okay, forget it. Um, the Equalizer. Or even The Princess Bride. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You know? It's vengeance. So why is nobody offended in those movies? It's because the evil is real. I mean, you know what I mean. It's, it's made up, but it's real. You know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. So no one is asking why Captain America is so violently angry when a sociopathic Nazi officer, Johann Schmidt, steals a mysterious ancient relic with untold powers and uses it to build an army and plan an attack that makes Hitler look tame. We want him to take vengeance. In fact, we cheer it on. Why do we happily cheer it on in our on-screen heroes but repel it? in the character of God. Or at least why do some people? Well, keep that in mind as we study Nahum this morning. So here's what we're going to do. It's three chapters. We are going to focus in on chapter one. We're going to read through it right now and make a few comments. We're going to focus on the stuff of chapter one. We're going to refer here and there to chapters two and three. Um, but again, focus is going to be on chapter 1. I encourage you to study chapters 2 and 3 on your own. Um, so let's go ahead and read through Nahum 1, 1 to 15. That's the first chapter. And then we'll walk through our outline. The points will be up on the screen. You can also look and find the outline on the landing page of the live stream. You know, sermon notes are there if you want to pull those up on your electronic device. <clears throat> An oracle concerning Nineveh. Yes, that's the same Nineveh that Jonah preached to. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord, see four capital letters, Yahweh. It's his covenant name, so I'm going to read it that way. Talk more about that in a few minutes. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. 
The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against Yahweh? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a worthless counselor. So sometimes these pronouns are difficult to follow, but from you, referring to Nineveh, came one who plotted evil against God and his people, a worthless counselor, probably one of the Assyrian kings, or maybe a military strategist. Okay? Thus says Yahweh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, again, the pronouns um, are hard to follow. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his, the Assyrian yoke, from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Yahweh has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. The you now is... (laughs) Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Right, so that's chapter 1. Nahum was written sometime between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. Nineveh actually fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C., actually kind of a coalition of Babylonians and Medes. Okay? Nahum is like a sequel to Jonah. So Jonah prophesied 782, which again in B.C. terms is before this, right? Because the numbers go down. So 782 to 753. So the repentance of Nineveh in the book of Jonah in response to Jonah's preaching didn't last long. At least not past 745 B.C. And so now the judgment is coming to Assyria. And they're not going to be able to escape. So let's walk through a few points here. Again, we're going to be focusing on chapter 1, unpacking it a little bit more, focusing on God's character and the implications, and just referring a few times to chapters 2 and 3. So first point, Yahweh is a jealous, wrathful avenger. So it's obvious if you follow along as we read chapter 1 that the book of Nahum is about God. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
So, again, reason why I translate Yahweh is because those four letters represent His covenant name. Okay, Lord is a title, right? Yahweh is a name. So, Lord is what He is, and yes, He is the Lord. He's the Lord of Lords. But here, the word is Yahweh. Okay? And Jews, out of reverence, didn't want to say his name, so they substituted Adonai, Lord, in its place. But God wants us to know his name. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know who he is. It's his personal name. He revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am, the self-existent one. He revealed himself to Moses when he hid him in the cleft of the rock and passed by and declared, pronounced his name, all of his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. That's his name. It's his glory. Show me your glory. Well, that's my glory. It's who I am. So you may be a nurse or a teacher. Those are titles. But you have a name personal name, and it means something. So, according to God, what is God like? He is jealous, first of all. Does that throw any of you off? Jealous? Jealousy isn't a positive attribute, is it? Isn't that when you want something that somebody else has, like covetousness? Or there's like the stereotypical jealous husband, which is a terrible combination of weakness and domination. He's weak and insecure, needy and dependent, manipulative and self-pitying, but he's also controlling, threatening, suspicious, stifling. Is God like that? Is that what this is talking about? Well, listen to Exodus 34:14. See it up on the screen here. For you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's so central to who he is that it's one of his names. So again, what does this mean? Well, Exodus 34, it's in the context, this verse is in the context of the renewal of the covenant. Okay, after the Exodus, Aaron and the people, you know, Moses goes up, Aaron and the people, what do they do? They make the golden calf. Moses smashes the tablets when he comes down. He's so angry, the idolatry of the people. God inscribes another set. He says, Make a, you know, cut another set of tablets. God inscribes another set and proclaims his name. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, right? So he renews the covenant and exhorts Moses and the people of Israel to guard against the gravitational pull of idolatry when they go into the land of Canaan. The previous two verses go like this. Take care. Exodus 34, 12 and 13. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. It's a a false god. It's an idol. So then that verse 14 that we just read a minute ago, for you shall worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So God is jealous or zealous, it's a synonym. He's jealous for his glory and the good of his people. 
He is zealous, passionate about his glory and the good of his people. When we worship idols, he is passionately desirous of his glory and our repentant return to him for our good. So if God were indifferent when the Israelites made and worshipped the golden calf, indifference is the opposite of jealousy and zeal. If he was indifferent, then he would not care about his glory because he put his name on those people. And he would be indifferent toward them. It's unloving to leave people in their idolatry. No, he's too loving for that. He's too righteous for that. He's no idolater. He can't sit idly by when his people run after other gods that can ultimately do them no good. So he's jealous, and that's a good thing. Second, Nahum also reveals that God is wrathful. What is God's wrath? It's his principled opposition to evil. Okay, so God is wrathful. That is a sobering reality. And it needs to be more real to us. Sometimes it becomes a little more real to us when you're in like this crazy storm with like bone-rattling thunder and you remember how small you are and how big and awesome God is. It's really easy to go through our days just kind of operating as if God is a small thing. So his wrath is a sobering reality and it needs to be more real to us. But it's also a good thing. It's a good reality. You don't want a God that's indifferent to evil and cruelty and injustice. You want a God who hates evil. Evil is everything that's tearing our lives and our world apart. So Yahweh is jealous. He is wrathful. Thirdly, he's the avenger. You see, it's repeated three times just in verse 2. Look at that. Yahweh is jealous and avenging. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Second time. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So who is it that meets out justice against wrongs that are done? Do we have that right? No. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will inflict the just punishment for every wrong. Romans 12, 17 to 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So listen, this is God's universe. Nobody's getting away with anything. That's both a threat and it's a comfort. If you are an enemy of God, if you are, you know, trying to be your own God, that's a threat. And there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. But if you've been reconciled to God through Christ, then that is a wonderful comfort. Because oftentimes we're persecuted, we suffer injustice, and 
guess what? God is going to right every wrong. Nobody's getting away with anything. Every sin, listen to this, every sin committed, every sin that has been committed, that will be committed on planet Earth in the time of human history, either will be paid for by Jesus on the cross or will be paid for in eternity in hell. And if that's true, for those who are forgiven and their sin is under the blood, we don't need to enact, exact a pound of flesh and try to add our own punishment to that. We can forgive. But for those who refuse to repent, God's going to deal with them too. And we don't have to try to get vengeance because hell is enough payment. We don't have to add ours. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So nobody's offended at the Avengers. The evil is clear, repulsive. You know, if you watch those movies, the bad guys are, you know, you want them to get it. If we are offended, even slightly, you know, sometimes we just kind of don't want to think about that, you know? If we're offended at the wrath and vengeance of God, maybe it's because we don't realize the evil of evil. We don't realize how sinful sin is. And I'm talking about our own, not just that guy over there. And that's even part of the deceitfulness of sin, the blinding effect of sin. And so Nahum is like the smelling salts from God. Because there really is a category of being an enemy of God. You really can be his enemy and his adversary. Look at verse 2. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And you do not want to be an enemy of Almighty God. Because, point number two, who can stand before his wrath? Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Who can stand? Who can endure it? No one. Look at verses 8 to 10. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The Assyrians were completely destroyed and never, you know, Assyria was never rebuilt. So that's just like a a foretaste of final judgment, like an early picture of this ultimate universal truth. So what do you plot against Yahweh? (laughs) Like as if your schemes, as if any scheme is going to work against Almighty God. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed, like stubble fully dried. So it's absolutely futile to oppose God, to resist Him, to pick a fight with Him because you want to be God or because you turn from Him and worship some created thing or person. If He is the just judge, the judge, 
if he sees all, if he knows all, and no one's getting away with anything, and the wages of sin is death, then Pharaoh didn't get, get away with his oppression, even though they were in Egypt for 400 years, could seem like God forgot, forgot about them. Pharaoh didn't get away with his oppression of the Israelites. His army didn't escape the judgment of the waters. And in the context of Nahum chapters 2 and 3, wicked Assyria, it's clear, did not get away with their violence and cruelty and oppression. I mean, chapters 2 and 3 are almost like a cinematic, poetic account of the downfall of Nineveh, again, capital of Assyria, and ultimately the kingdom of Assyria. Those two chapters are written kind of like an eyewitness account before it even happened, an eyewitness account of the attack on Nineveh by Babylonians and Medes and their downfall. So ESV Study Bible says this, Nahum writes as if he were at Nineveh in 612 B.C. speaking to the Ninevites. And then the um, author of that note writes with underlying sarcasm. In a sense, this book is filled with taunts. You thought you were so invincible that Assyria, that uh, Nineveh was impregnable. Not when God is your enemy. There's just nowhere to run. So some of the most chilling words that express this judgment are found in 2.13 and 3.5. So look at verses verse 13 of chapter 2 and verse 5 of chapter 3. And this is point number 3. Behold, I am against you. So the Lord says through Nahum to Assyria, Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, the armies of heaven and earth. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So this is interesting. If you, if you know ancient Near Eastern history and you know, the Assyrian kings, actually other kings as well, oftentimes would, would associate lions with themselves. You know, it's the king of beasts, and we're the great king. I'm the great king of this, you know, great kingdom, and I'm like a lion, and we tear the prey. You know, we just go. So Paul House, um, Old Testament professor, writes this. The city will be torn, though it has been as mighty as a lion. The reference to the lion is ironic, since lions were often used in Assyrian art as being hunted by Assyrian kings, and since these kings love to compare themselves to mighty lions, Assyria's military prowess is no more able to save them from the one God any more than Egypt's might could save it in the day of the Exodus. No sinful nation, however powerful, can avoid divine wrath. And then in chapter 3, after likening Assyria, again, in, in this book, it's poetry, so it shifts metaphors, you know, back and forth. So after likening Assyria to a prostitute in verse 4 of chapter 3, you know, one who seduces nations with her charms and then betrays them, Nahum writes in 3.5, Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So that phrase, behold, I am against you, repeated, you know, in 2.13, 3.5, that should send a chill down our spine. If there's anything that you do not want to hear 
from God. It's, behold, I am against you. From your maker and your judge, you do not want to be an enemy of God. And yet we're all natural born enemies. Romans 5 makes it clear. We deserve to hear, each and every one of us. We will hear. Unless amnesty is offered, we will hear, behold, I'm against you. So thankfully, Yahweh is not only a wrathful avenger. Yahweh is also, point number four, slow to anger. Look at verse three of chapter one. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. Again, that's an echo of Exodus 34. What is God like? He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Listen, this hit me so hard. I think it was maybe a week and a half ago or so. Just so encouraged by this. Um, God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Anger is not his natural or preferred disposition. It must be provoked. So, great quote in this book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I've quoted it a few times in the last several months, um, written by Dane Ortland. He writes this, Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Just repent. He gives grace to the humble. But then he notes that for fallen human beings, it's the opposite. We must provoke one another to love. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 24. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Yahweh needs no provoking to love, only to anger. We need no provoking to anger. It's pretty natural. Only to love. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. So what is God like? Does he have like a hair trigger temper and he's just waiting to zap you with a lightning bolt if you step out of line like Zeus? No, he's slow to anger. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his glory. That's who he is. That's his heart. That's why we, natural-born enemies of God, have good news this morning. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's like the passage that, that uh, Dr. Singer ended with last week. I think it was near the end of the message, Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. What's his preferred disposition? Of course he will be angry and wrathful where need be. But, his, but that's temporary. His true, natural 
preferred disposition is steadfast love. Psalm 103, Yahweh is merciful and gracious. This again echoes Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. But his steadfast love will endure forever. So God is slow to anger. He's quick to compassion and mercy and steadfast love. That is who he is. That's what he's like. That's his heart. Does that mean he's not wrathful? No, of course not. Does that mean those who reject Christ will not suffer his wrath? No, of course they will suffer his wrath. But what is God's deepest heart? What is his greatest delight? Wrath or mercy and steadfast love? We are dealing with not a cosmic Zeus ready to throw a lightning bolt the moment you step out of line. He is full of riches, of kindness and forbearance and patience and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. That's who he is. We saw that in the book of Jonah, right? But the same verse in Nahum also says the Lord Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. Which is also a pointer back to Exodus 34. Nahum keeps taking us back to Exodus 34. So be reminded of that, those verses again. Moses, cleft of the rock, show me your glory, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna just hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover you and I'll let you see me after I pass by. I'm gonna declare my name to you. This is my glory. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So this phrase, by no means, unfortunately, it's a little bit misleading. We have the English expression, by no means, it actually means certainly will not, right? It's not true that there's no means because <laughs> there was means in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system and Jesus is certainly the means by which he clears the guilty. So that translation is a little bit misleading. The issue instead is that he is perfectly just. Nobody's getting away with anything. The guilty don't escape, escape justice. He doesn't. He surely will not clear guilty sinners unjustly. This is sweep it under the rug of the universe. So God is against his enemies. He's wrathful in the avenger, but he's also slow to anger. And point number five, he is good and he's a refuge. Look at verse seven of chapter one. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> I mean, in the midst of this book with all of this language of wrath and, and jealousy and judgment, he's good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. It's the same truth in Psalm 46 that Bonnie read. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So let's just try to put all this together. Yahweh is good. He's slow to anger but he's just. And we are by nature his enemies. 
And he will surely not unjustly clear the guilty. But he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So how is this all harmonized? I mean, aren't those like unresolvable odds? He will, buy, he will not clear the guilty. He's merciful. How can he both be both just and acquit the guilty? It's not resolved until the cross of Christ, but it is resolved in the cross of Christ, and that's why the cross of Christ is such good news. Jesus absorbed the righteous wrath of God that we deserve on the cross so that the guilty would be punished. He was punished in our place. God didn't just sweep it under the rug of the universe. And those who take refuge in Christ are justified and acquitted and made righteous. I mean, what does that mean? How do you do that? You recognize your sin, that you are an enemy of God. You're guilty of cosmic rebellion, cosmic treason, cosmic revolution. We've all shaken our fist at God. We've all wanted to be God. We want our will to be done on earth. And you lay down your weapons because through Christ, amnesty is offered. And you can take refuge in Christ and all is forgiven and you are reconciled to God. Good news. He is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Such good news. So look at the last verse of chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. It's very similar language in Isaiah 52, 7. You can look at that later. But here's, here's the idea. What's going on here? Feet of him who brings good news. You know, you hear that in Romans 10. Um, what, what is this all about? Well, imagine two kingdoms in ancient times, and they're at war out in the plain somewhere in between the two kind of capital cities or whatever. And it's not just your warriors versus their warriors. It's your God versus their God, right? If you win the war, what do you do? You can't break out your cell phone and report back home. You can't tweet, hashtag, we won. You send a runner, a messenger, and you better believe that that city is waiting in anticipation with watchmen on the walls looking at the horizon. And they want to know if they're going to have to hunker down and face a siege and perhaps imminent death, or if they're going to know the thrill and relief of victory. So if you're watching that horizon, you see a weary band of retreating soldiers, you know what it means. Trouble. If, on the other hand, you see the spring in the step of a fast messenger, those are beautiful feet because they bring good news, announcing peace that your God reigns. And what are the watchmen going to do when they see those beautiful feet? That city is going to be spring-loaded for a party when the messenger enters the gates and shouts to the gathered throng, I bring good news of great joy. 
We have been delivered from our deadly foes. Rejoice and be glad. Our God reigns. We have peace and safety. So that is the good news of the gospel, the greatest battle won by our champion, Jesus, putting death to death, taking the sting out of death, dealing with sin and the wrath of God, our greatest enemies. And now, if you are in Christ, Romans 8 is yours. If God is for you, who can be against you? So the Assyrians, the enemies of God, behold, I am against you. It's the worst thing that we could ever hear. But God is not against us if we're in Christ. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That, brothers and sisters, is, is good enough news to stabilize us and give us buoyancy and joy and resilience, even in the midst of pandemics, protests, and politics. If we live, brothers and sisters, focused on small things, and actually pandemics, protests, and politics are small things, <laughs> and a lot of other things that we tend to fixate on. If we live for small things, if those are at the center, if small things control and govern us, if small things determine our day and our mood, We've lost sight of the big, transcendent truths and realities. So let's fixate on God, on the big things, the big realities. I heard two quotes this week that I thought were so helpful. I don't have these on the slides, but Jonathan Lehman said, recognize, he's speaking to pastors, he said, recognize the existential threat Christians are feeling. Okay, there's a lot of terrible stuff going on. It's real, so I'm not trying to say it means nothing or, you know, recognize the existential threat Christians are feeling, but remind them of the eternal threat that they've been rescued from. <laughs> so there, I'm obeying what he said. All right. Nahum is. And then Mark Dever said this, before and after America, there was and will be the church. <laughs> the nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty gates of hell, like I'm going to build my church, <laughs> the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we've got to remember what's most important, brothers and sisters, to tether our lives, our hearts, our hopes, our security, our safety, everything to Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a rock and a refuge for us. And that's what the Lord's table is all about. It's a visible, tangible, edible, drinkable reminder of what is most important. And isn't it so easy to forget the most important things and fixate on small things? And isn't it kind and loving of God to give us, among other things, this wonderful tangible, tasteable, visible reminder of what's most important about God, about ourselves, about our past, about our present, about our future. So, final point, death and, and the deliverer. What, what do I mean by that? Well, did you notice the Exodus echoes? 
in Nahum chapter 1. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. What's that remind you of? The Red Sea. Exodus deliverance. He dries up all the rivers. What does that make you think of? Maybe the Jordan? Right? On the way into the promised land? There's other allusions like Carmel, you know, Elijah, and the showdown with the false prophets of Baal. Look at verse 5. The mountains quake before him. What mountain quaked when Yahweh showed up? Sinai. Again, Exodus deliverance out of Egypt, in the wilderness, into the promised land. Verse 13. Now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. More Exodus imagery. Pharaoh's heavy yoke. Yahweh broke it and delivered them. So when he broke the yoke of oppression for his people, delivered them from Egypt, how did the Israelites escape death? The tenth plague of judgment. It wasn't just, oh yeah, you're my people, I'll just give you a pass. No, it was, you need to take refuge in. You need to take refuge under the blood of the Lamb. That's how the angel of death passed over and the people of Israel were delivered from wrath and judgment, the wrath and judgment of God. And that's what this meal grew out of, the Passover meal, remembering the deliverance. And actually, Jesus' exodus deliverance from slavery to sin under the strong man Satan is an even greater deliverance than the exodus deliverance. And so the Lord's Supper is in continuity with and even greater than the Passover meal. And why is God for us and not against us? Why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because of the blood of the Lamb shed for us, covering all of our sins so that we have atonement, full atonement. We're reconciled to God. So this is what this meal symbolizes. We look back on deliverance, Jesus' death in our place, we are under, taking refuge in Christ under the blood of the Lamb. And we're on our way home. The land of milk and honey, it's coming. And this is a foretaste of the feast to come, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, Death and the Deliverer, the echoes of the first exodus, this table is all about the greater exodus and the fact that we are delivered from death by the great Deliverer, not Moses, but Jesus. So if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have taken refuge in Christ, laid down your weapons, acknowledged that you're an enemy by nature, and a sinner by choice and trusted in Christ as your Savior, then, brothers and sisters, let's celebrate and be reminded of and savor and fixate on the big, glorious, good news of the gospel this morning and be tethered and anchored and stabilized and encouraged by the gospel. And if you are not sure yet what you believe, 
If you're not trusting in Christ as your Savior, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're tuning in. You can just refrain from taking the elements, but we would love to talk to you and answer any questions that you have and, and talk about what it means to trust in Jesus. So you could certainly reach out to info at bbcde.org and we'll get in touch with you and we'd love to serve you in any way that we can. So the musicians are going to come up and play quietly as we kind of reflect on our own hearts. Lord, where have I operated like an enemy of yours? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Lord, show me my pride. Show me where I've just yielded to, you know, small things and all the anxiety and fear and paralysis that comes from that. Lord, fixate my heart and my mind on the big, great things and prepare your heart to feed on the grace that's ours in Jesus. So let's pray, and then um, we'll participate in the table together after some time of reflection. Lord, we thank you that you are a refuge to us. You are good. You are a stronghold in the day of trouble. You know those who take refuge in you. And we thank you for Jesus, that he has made a way for us to be safe and secure forever. That you are not against us in Christ. There is no condemnation, but you are for us. And if you are for us, who can be against us? Please remind us, show us, cause these great, glorious truths to sink in and saturate our souls down at the core and change us from the inside out and give us joy and stability and gratitude and hope and help and help us to be conduits of those same things to others who so desperately need your grace and steadfast love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.